Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Good job, everybody involved on that. It's a privilege to have the kids sharing and singing. And um, I do want to say <clears throat> happy Father's Day. Actually, you know, I have an interesting perspective maybe uh, to all the men of the church because uh, all of us, when we take our spiritual responsibilities seriously, understand that we are investing in the next generation. So every man in the church, you have the privilege of being, uh, even if you're not a physical father of anyone, the spiritual father of every young man and woman that you would encounter and speaking into their life the same kinds of discipleship and, and things that they need uh, from a physical father. So thank you all the men who are here this morning. Uh, we are going to continue our series on the Christ after uh, one more quick announcement that I just about forgot. If you're interested in CPR training, I uh, encourage you to uh, contact T. There's a, a um, sheet on the back table that gives you her number to text her. And uh, we sign up for a CPR class next week, uh, right after church. So we encourage everybody who's a leader, especially, or uh, in, a, in a leadership-type position here at the church, to consider getting certified so that not only do we save lives spiritually, but we can also be prepared to save lives physically as well. So um, CPR next Sunday. It's $35 a person, but there are scholarships available from the church, especially for those of you who are in leadership positions. We want to see as many leaders certified as we can get, so... Let's uh, open our Bibles up to the Gospel of Ma- uh, Mark, excuse me, the Gospel of Mark, um, and we're going to be looking in chapter 14. Some of you guys might be wondering why I'm sitting. Michael, don't you normally run back and forth across the stage? Yes, that's true. I'm fighting a cold still, which I, I shared with you last week, uh, not the cold, but that I was fighting it, and I find if I don't move around as much, I don't cough as much. So I am going to be as still as I possibly can, and um, uh, also you'll catch me wearing a mask when I'm not further away. So uh, Mark chapter 14, we're going to start in verses, uh, verse 43, but just to remind us that the whole theme of Mark is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So all throughout this gospel of Mark, we've been learning the singular truth repeated in different ways. We've heard heard it from the mouth of a demon. We've heard it from the mouth of uh, people who were healed. We've heard it from the mouths of the disciples. And then today, we're going to see it uh, proclaimed from someone very unique and specific that actually is the climax of this gospel. Um, last week, we talked about uh, just after the, the Last Supper and in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples that they would all fall away. And, uh, but then he also encouraged them by saying, I will be raised up. He, he knew his death was coming, but was encouraging him saying, I'll be raised up, and then I'll go before you into Galilee. Our, our relationship will be restored. And that's, that's what he said, you will fall into sin, you will fall away, but I will rise and I'll see you again, and our relationship will be restored. And if you guys remember, Peter heard what Jesus said, and all he heard was that last little bit that you're going to make a mistake, you're going to fall away, and he was like, no way. I'm too good for that. I will not. My, you know, I'm going to be self-assured. I'm going to be self-righteous. I'm going to be strong enough to not reject you, Jesus, to not fall away. Um, and he missed the other two promises of restoration and Jesus' resurrection. But then we see as Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, Jesus himself offered up to the Father his own prayers of praise and then petition, Father, if there's any other way for this to happen, could it be so? Because I'm not really looking forward to the cup that you have for me, this wrath, this death, this suffering and judgment. And so if it, it could be any other way, please let it be some other way. And then, but not my will, your will be done. And so we see in Peter and Jesus, two different men responding to the trials that are before them two different ways. Peter, when he's told there's going to be a trial, says, that's okay, I'm strong enough. And Jesus, when he knows this trial is ahead of him, says, I need you, Father, I need your strength. I, I am in submission to you, and I, I am afraid of what's coming. I, I would like it to be something different. I don't think I can handle this, but 
your will, not mine, be done. And then we, we kind of ended up uh, last Sunday with Jesus telling the disciples, everybody, get up. Uh, it's time to get going because my betrayer is at hand. And so that brings us to Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 72. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Uh, if you have your uh, Bible app, scroll to the beginning and let's get going. We're going to read first uh, as we get started. Chapter 14, verses 43 through 50. And we've got a little bit of ground to cover, but you'll see why we cover so much today. Because really this is exposition that's just taking us from the Garden of Gethsemane to the crucifixion. And, and this, this is moving pretty quickly here. But we're going we're gonna to glean some really good stuff from it as we move through this quickly as well. So, if you will, read along with me in Scripture, Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 50. And immediately, remember Mark likes to use and and immediately. It keeps the story moving. So, and immediately, while he was speaking, Jesus speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as, as excuse me, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So this is the, the moment of betrayal that Jesus has known was coming. Remember back in the beginning of this chapter, he knew that Judas would be the one to betray him. He knew what was coming. He's known all along as we look throughout his ministry that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise again. These are all things that Jesus has been saying of himself, and he knows this is unfolding, and the Father has answered his prayer of, let it go some other way with a very resolute, no, this is how it needs to unfold, Jesus. And so Jesus is resolved to walk through this suffering according to the will of the Father and leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be able to, to do this. This is not some small task. And I think a lot of us have an understanding of Jesus where we look at him and we think, Jesus, Son of God and perfect man, of course he could do this kind of stuff. It would have been easy for him. But you need to wrap your head around the fact that Jesus struggled with this. Remember last week we talked about how he was so nervous, he was so stressed out that he sweat drops of blood. The capillaries in his sweat glands were bursting as he was stressed out and, and struggling to handle what was ahead of him. And so Jesus is, he is perfect man and he is the son of God, but he was also completely reliant upon the power of God and the Holy Spirit in order to make things happen, to, to walk through these things. So the difference between you and I and Jesus is that Jesus was without sin, yet he was also completely dependent upon the Spirit for these things to unfold in his life. So understand that even as Jesus did miracles, he was dependent upon the Spirit. Even as Jesus walks through this crucifixion, this struggle, this suffering, he is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit for the strength he needs to make it through and so you and I are much like Jesus in that way in that we are nothing without the power of God within us. And so as we watch what's happening with Jesus, we need to remember this isn't Jesus is some sort of, you know, great grand wizard who can do anything. He is human like us, though he is fully God as well. But he's also completely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit in order to make it through these sufferings, to make it through these trials. So when we read of what Jesus says and does, it's not because... He is like this, this ubermensch, but he is instead a, a perfect man who still is struggling and relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So as this betrayal unfolds, Judas had already arranged, the person I walk up to and kiss, that's the one that you, the guards, you need to take hold of. And so it, uh, it unfolds, Mark tells us that when Jesus, or excuse me, when Judas came, 
he went up to Jesus, the, the him, at once and said, Rabbi. So Judas walks up into the crowd and pretend, pretends like this is all just normal. You know, oh, my great teacher whom I love so much. And the word kissed in the Greek, this isn't like just a little peck on the cheek. Um, neither is it something passionate or, or inappropriate, but what it is, is it, it's an intimate expression of affection. Uh, it says that, that Judas was behaving like everything was just normal between he and Jesus, and that he was in love with Jesus. You're my, you're my Lord, you're my master, you're my king. And so we, we see that, that Jesus is experiencing this, this ridiculously false uh, kind of uh, betrayal from, from Judas. He's, he's putting on airs. He's pretending like everything's okay, Judas is. And Jesus sees right through it and knows that Judas' heart is one of betrayal. Psalm 55 kind of speaks to this. Verses 12 through 14, the psalmist writes, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me again. I'm going to try real hard to stay calmer. I'm getting excited already. Um, <coughs> we used to take sweet counsel together <coughs> within God's house. We walked in the throng. So we see the psalmist is already in, in a messianic prophecy, setting the stage, helping us understand what Jesus is feeling. This is not an enemy that's come to him to betray him. That would have been easy. But this is a dear friend. This is someone who comes and kisses him as though they're the closest of relations. And he is the one that's betraying Jesus. And so we should understand what Jesus is feeling. This is not some sort of Oh, I knew it would happen like this. It's okay. But instead, even though he knows it's coming, even though he knows it's unfolding the way that God the Father has ordained, he still is feeling deeply this betrayal. He's feeling deeply this, this, this dear friend who's walked with him all these years coming and selling him out to the, the culture, selling him out to the religious elite, sealing his death. This is a dear friend Sealing the death of Jesus Christ. And so when we, when we read this, a lot of times we, we think that, you know, Jesus doesn't understand. Jesus has an experience. In, in church life, and we won't do a show of hands because we'd probably be really disappointed, but the truth is, is if we ask how many of us have been hurt by someone that we thought was a dear friend, especially in Christian life, in church, most of us would raise our hands. Most of us would go, yeah, I've been stabbed in the back. I've been betrayed. Somebody who said they loved me sold me out. And it hurt deeply. And I want you to understand that, that Jesus knows your pain in that regard. He understands the depth of, of pain that comes from betrayal. He understands exactly what it is to have someone that you counted as an equal, a companion, a familiar friend, sell you out to the religious elite, sell you out for the sake of their own gain. Jesus understands this. And so when we come to him, in prayer, when we come to him in, in pain, he knows our pains, specifically when it relates to betrayal, when it relates to a good friend, a loved one who's turned their back on us. And so we, we, we get this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. We get this beautiful picture of what he experiences and how, as our Savior, he can relate so intimately with, with the deepest of our pains and our struggles and our fears. And then Mark goes on to say that this is what unfolds. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So Jesus is uh, he's arrested or, or seized. And it, scripture tells us that one of them who stood by. Now, the other gospels tell us it was one specific disciple. Any guesses as to who it is? How did you know? It's Peter. Um, Peter pulls a sword, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, there is a good chance that the servant of the high priest was wearing a helmet, and his ears protruded from his helmet, and so it was actually Peter trying to strike a death blow on this poor guy, and the, it glances off and slices off his ear. 
Uh, it's not that Peter was a bad swordsman and was aiming for the ear. Rather, he was aiming to, to cleave this man's head asunder and uh, to, 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 to kill him. And yet all he can manage to do is take off his ear. And, and that's bad enough, right? <laughs> but but we, we see then in the other Gospels that Jesus does not respond favorably to what Peter does. In Luke chapter 22, verse 51, Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So Luke tells us, Luke, Dr. Luke, um, he tells us that Jesus took Malchus's ear, that was the name of the servant, and he put his ear back on and he healed him. He didn't want any violence to happen. He didn't want anyone else to suffer. Rather, he knew that this is what the Father had ordained, and so he took and healed this servant, uh, touched his ear, and made him whole. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus said this specifically to Peter. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. So Jesus says to Peter, you're well-intentioned, maybe, but stop it. Put your sword away. We've already talked about this, Peter. This isn't the way that this is going to go down. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. You're going to fall away. So put away your sword. Because everyone who chooses to live by violence like this will ultimately perish by violence. And this is really a picture when Jesus doesn't tell everybody, pull out your swords and fight, men, that we, it gives us a picture of what Jesus really came for. If Jesus came for a political reason, if he came to overthrow a worldview, or he came to overthrow a governmental system, or he came to bring about perfect harmony amongst all people as, as uh, you know, everybody's fed, everybody's clothed in a perfect way, if, if that was his intent, this side of eternity, this would have been the moment where he would have said, everyone, draw your sword, we're establishing the kingdom of God. But instead, he says to Peter and he says to all of us, listen, government and power and authority, these are not the ways by which the kingdom will be established. Instead, it is by my death, burial, and resurrection and the new life that comes through me that all of this is going to be renewed and changed. Jesus said, if I wanted to do this violently, if I wanted this to be a revolution, it wouldn't be a matter of one guy with a sword and me egging him on. I would call out to my father, and he would at once send more than 12 legions of angels. Now, 12 legions of angels. A legion uh, in, in, in the Roman army was about 6,000 soldiers. And so Jesus says to Peter, and he says to his disciples, if I wanted to, I could, I could have the Father send 12 legions of angels. So that's 72,000 angels right away. Now, when we understand the city of Jerusalem only had about 50,000 people in it uh, any given time, and then up to about 300,000, maybe even a million during Passover like this, 72,000 angels, that's, that's quite a lot of firepower. And Jesus is saying, it, it's not my intent to come in and rule by violence. It's not my intent to rule by governance in the, the way that you think, but instead, this is the path that the Father has for me. This isn't about politics. It's not about revolution. It's about redemption. And so it's important for us in our day and age to understand, if Jesus was here to be a revolutionary, he would have done it in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he wasn't here to be a revolutionary. He was here to be a redemption for all of us who would believe on him as Lord and Savior. Now, the effects of, of salvation are amazing. The effects of the gospel are phenomenal in our lives, and they should be seeping out of our pores and into the lives of others around us. Because we are saved, we should be people of peace. We should be people of giving. We should be people of harmony. We should be people who serve one another. But that isn't the, the reason that Jesus came. The reason he came was to save us first. And that's why he stays on task and he stays focused. Now, the end of this passage, it tells us in, in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. So it's Peter and James and John and, and, and all of the other disciples. 
They all packed up right at this instant as Jesus is arrested and they flee and leave him. Now, this is in fulfillment of Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Just last week, just a couple of hours before this event, Jesus tells all of them, you will all fall away. And what did they all say? No, we won't. No, we won't, Jesus. We are going to follow after you. And Peter said, even if they all fall away, I will die for you, Jesus. And what we see is immediately, when the times got difficult, all of the disciples ran away. They simply tucked tail and ran. And so we get to what happens next here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. And what this is, is just a little bit of a personal touch from the author of this gospel. And we see it here, and he says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away. So what we see here is this, this story that seems to not fit anywhere in here. Why do we care about a young man in a linen cloth who runs away naked? I mean, it, it adds a little bit of humor to this moment, maybe, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, in the Avengers movies, they, they're, you know, world-ending violence and destruction, and then somebody cracks a joke in the middle of it, and you all go, ha, 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 okay, the tension's gone. Let's watch them destroy the world. Um, and, and so it, it could be that, but really what this is is we, we believe that this is Mark himself telling us what happened to him that night. You see, if you remember talking about the Passover meal and the upper room that Jesus and his disciples partook of the Passover meal uh, of together, that upper room, historians, theologians, we think it belonged to Mark's family. So Mark's father would have been the host of Jesus and his disciples for their Passover meal that, that had happened just earlier this nightfall. And, and Mark would have been in the home and listening to everything that's going on. And this word young man, he, he could be anywhere from 18 to about 25 to 28. So here he is in his father's home and he's listening to what's going on. And he's hearing this Passover meal with Jesus and the disciples going on in the room that's on the roof above him. He's hearing Jesus teach. He's hearing that Jesus is going to be betrayed. When, when Jesus gathers up his disciples and they sing a hymn and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane out on the Mount of Olives, this young man who had been in bed grabs his night linen, the, the, the sheets, if you will, and wraps himself in his sheets and goes out and follows secretly the disciples and Jesus because he can't get enough of what he's hearing. He wants to understand what's going on. And so it's, it's a good chance that he was hiding in the bushes this whole time, listening to Jesus pray, listening to the disciples talk, and then watching as Judas betrays Jesus. And as Peter cuts off the, the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And so we get this little aside that there was a young man with nothing but his sheets wrapped around him who had been there listening to what was going on. And these guards saw him and seized him too. And they, they grabbed the sheets that were wrapped around him. But he dropped the sheets and ran off naked. This is not something that you put in the story that... Um, for no reason, right? It's just, it, it has a purpose and it helps us to understand that our scriptures are genuine. That, that we have an eyewitness here in Mark, this, this writer of the gospel who got the other details from Peter, but he was also there on that night. And, and if it was made up, wouldn't it be a much nicer story to say, and there was a young man dressed in his finest clothes who was caught listening to the teaching uh, but left his robe and ran off. You know, I mean, this is an embarrassing story for Mark. But it's the truth. And so this is one of those ways that we know that Scripture is true because it shares with us some of the embarrassing real-life stories of the people who took part in the gospel. You know, it, it's like um, there are some stories in our family. If we were to tell you the stories of our family to tell you some of this, you, you'd know if they were real by how embarrassing they are. You know, there's one, it, 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 uh, it, it, it takes up sitting in the car outside of a Papa Murphy's. It's a, it's a place that makes pizza for you, and then you take it home and bake it. And, and, and then a father who was 
not feeling well. And yeah, the story just goes downhill there from there. And um, bad things happen. And then he has to drive 25 minutes home in not-so-clean pants. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's, that's the kind of story that if, if I tell you that, you go, oh, I know that's true, because you wouldn't tell us that if it wasn't true. Uh, you know, the stories of not-so-clean pants and upset stomachs. And, you, you know, that's the kind of stuff where you go, that's a reality. That makes sense to me. That's probably a true story. And this is the same kind of thing. We know that Mark's gospel is true because he's willing to share with us some really embarrassing truth about himself and about what went on around his experiences that night. And so we end up with this really cool picture of an author who was there, but also shares with us some of his own dirt to help us understand this is true. This is true. I, I want you to know that exactly what this night was like. And what this night was like for me was a pretty embarrassing moment. But it was real, and here's the truth. So Mark goes on to write in verses 53 through 65 about Jesus' experience before the Sanhedrin, the, the council that is going to judge him, the Jewish leadership. And so if you'll read with me in your Bibles, verses 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council, council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying... We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So... It continues to unfold that Jesus is taken before the religious elite of the Jewish people and they are going to pass judgment on him. And as Jesus <coughs> excuse me, is brought into this uh, home of the high priest, Peter is following along, kind of slinking along and trying to hide from what's going on. And it says he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And at means his face to the fire. And so he had his face to the fire. This is probably about three o'clock in the morning as this is unfolding, maybe a little further along. But uh, about three o'clock in the morning, Peter is sitting at the fire with his face to the fire and the, the guards are there watching him. And he's just part of the crowd hanging out, waiting to see what the religious elite are going to do with Jesus. And so they, they seek to Find testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But, but Mark tells us, and, and from what Peter told him and, and what they understood, they were unable to find any testimony to put Jesus to death. And then it, it goes on to tell us that there were a lot of people who bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony didn't agree. And some were talking about how he talked, he, Jesus said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. But none of their testimonies agreed. And so it's, it's important for us to understand something about what's unfolding here. Is This is not really a fair trial according to Jewish law. But they, the, the Jewish leaders are trying to keep some semblance of justice. And Jewish law mandated a, a few things. Number one, in a court setting like this, the witnesses essentially served as the prosecution. 
So the, the leadership would stand in judgment. Whomever was accused would be brought in, and then all of the witnesses would come in and testify against the accused. And they were the ones offering up the argument for why the accused should be punished. But Jewish law required that no one could be prosecuted, no one especially could face a death penalty without the agreement of at least two witnesses. And so when it tells us that they couldn't find any reason to put him to death, they couldn't find any testimony, it's because every witness that came in told a different story, prosecuted him for a different crime. Their, 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 their truths didn't line up. And so there was no way that the religious leaders could pass judgment when they didn't have two witnesses in agreement regarding the crimes that Jesus had committed. So that's when we read here that they couldn't find enough, or the right testimony, they couldn't, they couldn't pass judgment on him to put him to death. It's because they needed two perfectly agreeing witnesses in order to condemn him. So we're going to see that all through the, the, the night here, or what's left of the night, they're, they're deliberating, they're trying to find ways to condemn Jesus. And it was actually illegal for them to give a verdict in the middle of the night. And we're going to find they don't. They actually don't pronounce their judgment officially until sunrise. And they wait until sunrise because that's what the law, the Jewish law required, is that uh, condemnation had to be uh, given in the light of the day. And also they do it first thing in the morning so that they can take Jesus to Pilate and Jesus can face judgment under Pilate's uh, rule. And, and that was normally done in first thing in the morning uh, for Roman business. So <clears throat> this is unfolding and, and the high priest, he stands up and he asks Jesus, you know, what's your deal? All of these people are making accusations against you, and yet you do not defend yourself. You're not answering these accusations. And, and, and Peter and, and Mark, Scripture tells us that Jesus continued to remain silent, and he had no answer. The, the reason he didn't have to answer these accusations is because none of them could stick. They were all false. He had no reason to speak. But also it's in fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus not responding to the accusations is a straightforward fulfillment of messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53. So, not satisfied with Jesus' silence, the high priest asks him a very specific question. So again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And so when we see that the, the blessed there, the high priest is asking Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of God? The blessed was just a euphemistic, a, a, a different way of saying God without having to say God because the Jewish people were very guarded about using the name of God, very guarded about speaking of God for fear that they would blaspheme his name by speaking of him. And so they would speak of God in kind of secondary ways. So asking Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And here's what Jesus says. He says, I am. Now that, that one phrase should be enough for us all who, who know anything about our, our history and our Bible to go, ooh, because when Jesus says, I am, it, it harkens back to Exodus chapter 3. And when Moses meets God in the burning bush, and he says, what's your name? What does he say, God? Well, God says, I am that I am. And, and, and we know that God is the, the self-existent one. He is the one who has always existed. And so when he says, I am in the burning bush, he's saying, I'm the God of creation, I'm the God of life, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I am the God who has always been and will always be, I am dependent upon no one, I am God. 
So when Jesus says, I am, and he does it a whole lot more in the Gospel of John, but here, when he says, I am, immediately, everybody in the room, their, their, their ears are perked up, they're listening, they know what he's saying. They understand what he's referring to. They don't take it as, as some guy who's just answering a question. They understand that he is saying, I am the Christ, I am the Son of God, I am God himself. And here's what he goes on to say, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So some of us, we might read this and go, well, that's cool. Uh, It doesn't really mean anything. That's talking about the end times, right? Well, yes, it is. But there's actually specific Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is referring to. And so these religious leaders, when Jesus not only says, I am, but he says that you will see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, coming... (coughs) Getting excited again. (coughs) Coming with the clouds of heaven, he's referring to two different Old Testament passages. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes this, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God himself, and was presented before him, and to him, the son, uh, one like a son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's not talking about the fact that he is a person of flesh, though he is 100% flesh, 100% man. He's not talking about Mary or Joseph or any of his brothers or sisters. He is talking about this prophecy where one like a son of man will come to God the Father and be given rule and reign as God himself over all of creation. And so when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, this is what he's referring back to and everybody would have understood it. Everybody would have understood Jesus is saying, I'm the one who will be given all authority over all creation and all people, and everyone will bow to me, and my kingdom will never end and it will never be destroyed. In saying this, Jesus is essentially saying to these religious leaders, you're judging me now. You stand in judgment over me right now, but the day will come where my kingdom will be fulfilled and I will stand in judgment over you. And the choices that you've made today will be weighed. Not only is uh, Jesus referring back to Daniel, but also Psalm 110 and a number of the Psalms that we see pictures of Jesus. We see pictures of the Messiah. Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until until I make your enemies your footstool. So we see, we go back to what Jesus says. And he says it so clearly, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, a reference back to Daniel, seated at the right hand of power, a reference to Psalm 110, about his coming power and ability to judge over all of his enemies, and coming with the clouds of heaven, a reference back to Daniel, where the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven and is revealed as having dominion over everything. So Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is answering this question, are you the Christ, the Son of God, by saying, I am. And so if if you ever have listened to someone say, well, Jesus never really said he was God. He he just claimed to be a good teacher or a good leader. No, Jesus unequivocally, without question, here in Mark chapter 14, verses uh, 61 through 62, He clearly says that he is God. And there's no question about it as to what he means. And we know that everybody in the room understood him because of how they respond. Here's what happens. 
in verses 63 through 64. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. We know that Jesus clearly and unequivocally claimed to be God because we see the response of the high priest. And the high priest, his response is to tear his garments. And this was a, 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 a practice that was one of abject, uh, just anger and, and shame and, and just how could someone claim this about themselves? How could someone claim this about God? The proper response for the high priest when he heard blasphemy or someone claiming to be God or represent God that he thought was untrue would be to tear his garments. And so we see in doing that, he is declaring that he understands completely what Jesus is saying about himself. He understands that Jesus is claiming to be God. He, is, he understands that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man who will be given authority over all creation. And he also goes on to say, why do we need any other witnesses? Now, the interesting thing about the law is if the person themselves confesses to it and speaks it, you don't need other witnesses. It's been done right there in front of you. The whole Sanhedrin, the whole group to judge him now can stand as witnesses against Jesus that he has claimed to be God. And they all condemned him as deserving death. It says that they spit on him, which spitting on someone is the absolute worst thing you can do in, in belittling them and defiling them. I don't know if anybody has ever experienced it, but it is not a cool feeling. Um, I had a, a, an experience walking home from school. Another young man was, was trying to pick a fight with me, and I wouldn't fight him, mostly because I was scared to death of him. Um, you know, but, but he begins to, to call me names, and as we get closer and closer to home, we walk home on the same trail from school, and we get close to home, where we, the, the, the split in the trail, where he goes off to his neighborhood, and I go to mine, and he starts calling me names, and he starts spitting in my face, and just over and over and over again, spitting. And it is st still such a vivid memory of just face being covered in spit, and it's on my clothes, and, and, and just feeling so degraded and shamed. And, and, and this is what they're doing, all of them beginning to spit on him, to shame him, to, to, to cover his face, to, to hit him, to, to say to him, tell us who hit you, Jesus. It was a misinterpretation of an, a, a prophecy in Isaiah where they believed that the Messiah would be able to, to identify people by their very smell. Weird, but that's what they believed the prophecy said. And so they, they were telling Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, we ought to be able, you ought to be able to know who hit you just by what's going on around you, by the smell. And, and they, they make of him an absolute mockery. And, and when we read this, we need to understand, this is the price that Jesus paid for us. We, we think of the cross, and the cross, my goodness, it would have been a terrible experience but that is not the limit of the shame and suffering that Jesus went through for you and I. We see it began all the way back in the garden as he, he laments and he sweats his blood. It, it carries on with the betrayal of Judas. The, the, the way the other disciples leave him, this pain, this suffering emotionally, the way that he is betrayed. And then to be belittled and, and, and made nothing because of the truth of who he is all for you and I. All for us. Peter, in the first letter that he wrote to the churches, in chapter 2, verse 23, says this of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he suffered. Excuse me. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see in this moment, we see in this, this, this experience of being reviled and spit upon and beaten and suffering, Jesus does not rise up and call on those legions of angels like he could, but instead he continues to trust himself into the hands of the Father. This perfect example of who we should be when we encounter suffering. Not rising up and, and screaming and moaning and complaining, but to, to walk through it trusting in the hand of the Father, trusting in his provision, trusting in his strength. 
But then we see the man who didn't trust, the man who thought he had the strength to do it on his own, here in the remaining verses of chapter 14. Starting in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man on whom you speak, or of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So Peter is confronted, and over and over again he says, I do not know Jesus. The rooster crows once after the first time, and then after the, the second time he's confronted again, and by the time he gets to the third time of being confronted and asking, aren't you with this Jesus guy? He invokes a curse on himself and swears that he doesn't know Jesus. In other words, in invoking a curse on himself, he's more like, if I know this man, may I be condemned. He, he, is, he is so adamant to the crowd that he doesn't know Jesus. It's that, oh, I swear I don't know him. I, I if I know him, you know, cross, cross my heart and stick a needle in my eye and pants on fire, then, you know, you, you, can, you can do with me what you want. But I don't know him. And, and it's, it's really kind of a sad experience to watch Peter, this one who said, I will never betray you. I will never fall away. Because he's living in his own strength, because he's trying to do it all himself, what does he end up doing? He, he curses himself. He wishes harm upon himself and declares in no uncertain terms, I don't even know Jesus. And then immediately, the rooster crows a second time, just, just like Jesus had predicted. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. And others of the Gospels tell us that at the same time this rooster crowed twice, Jesus was walking out from the Sanhedrin, bloodied and beaten, and looked at Peter. And they made eye contact, and Peter felt shame because of the way that he had rejected Jesus. So what we end up with are two men to, to one who is fully submitted to the will of the Father and relying upon his power, and one who is shaking his fist saying, it's not going to be like you said, God. I'm going to be better and I'm going to do it all in my own strength. And we end up with these two rocks. Remember Peter, his name means rock. Jesus and Peter. And in these two rocks, we see two different, well, two different ways that they actually function. First, we see the rock of Jesus, who becomes the cornerstone of our salvation. And how does he do that? Well, he does it because he is in submission to the will of the Father and in complete reliance upon the power of the Spirit. And so we, as his followers, we, as those who would declare him to be our Lord, when we face times of trouble, when we face times of suffering, first, we can know that he fully understands us. And second, we can know that the only way that we can make it through those things is the same way our Savior did in complete submission to the will of the Father, in total reliance upon the power of the Spirit. And so if you're suffering right now, if you're struggling, if you're going through something, uh, if you're, you've got this sin that has beset you that you cannot get up out of, that you're in a spiral, I want to encourage you not to buckle down and try harder, but instead to give up and surrender fully. To stop trying to be a better person in your own power and instead, follow the path of Jesus. Trust on him as your cornerstone and work this out the same way he did by surrendering completely and trusting on the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to overcome. Or the other rock you could be like is like Peter, whose name means rock. But in prideful self-sufficiency, Peter, the rock, is crushed to gravel. He becomes 
so much less because of his pridefulness than what he could have been if he had walked in submission. And so we, we look, and Peter himself is the one who writes of Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a storm, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, Peter had failed to trust. Peter, Peter had failed to rely upon Christ, to rely upon the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he experienced, remember, shame. He breaks down and he weeps as he fails three different times. He's given opportunities here to succeed in submission and instead he fails. And he's broken down and he's shamed. But he says everybody who trusts on Jesus, everybody who builds their life on Jesus will never experience the shame that I did. Will never experience that loss that pridefulness brings. Will not experience that complete crushing that self-sufficiency welcomes into your life. But when you trust on Jesus, you will, you, you will suffer, but you won't be crushed. You will suffer, but you won't see that to be the end of your existence. Rather, it will be the beginning of new things in your life. So, just to wrap up this morning as we conclude, the thing to remember above all else is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who was sent to redeem all of mankind that whoever would believe on Him as their Savior, as their King, would be released from slavery to sin and brought into the kingdom of God and made whole and new again. And He is the Son of God, powerful beyond measure, worthy of all of our trust, the very cornerstone upon which we can build our life. And how do you go about building your life on the cornerstone that is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God? It's important for us to remember, whether we've heard this a hundred times, a million times, or just for the first time, that each and every one of us, the globe reminds us that we were created by a loving God who has a plan and a purpose for us, and yet that plan and that purpose requires submission. Sadly, just like Adam and Eve at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, every one of us have chosen to rebel against God in our own special little way. And in so doing, we have earned for ourselves not the eternal life that he longs for, for us, not the relationship that he wants with us, but we have earned for ourselves death, both spiritual and physical, eternal, and we have earned for ourselves not relationship but wrath because we have rebelled against a perfect God. But God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, who lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross to pay the price for your sins and mine. Remember, we talked about the body and the blood, how Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and paid the price of sin in his body, how he earned for us righteousness that we might be clothed in it through his body, how he sealed the contract of this new covenant by his blood and that his blood washes away all of the guilt of sin so that we can stand before the Father renewed, restored, forgiven, and clothed in righteousness. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again on the third day so that whoever believes on him and confesses with their mouth that he is Lord and God will be saved. And so we're left, every one of us, to make a choice with our hearts, to dig in deep and say, do I believe on Jesus as my Christ, the Son of God, or am I just going to let him sit over there, or, or will I reject him? And, and honestly, to not respond is to reject. And so today is a day, a good day, to respond to the call of Jesus on your life. Will you trust him as your Christ, the Son of God? As the worship team makes their way up, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for just the, the way that you unfolded things to purchase our salvation. We thank you for the faithfulness of your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience, even unto death, in order to purchase our lives, in order to redeem us from sin, in order to, to give us a life worth living. Today, we thank you that you are our cornerstone. We watch you suffer. We watch 
how you give of yourself in submission. May we build on your example and be like you and look more like you. Thank you for giving so much to purchase each and every one of us. You paid an endless ransom for one like me, for one like each of us, and we're so thankful for that. Today, if there's anyone who needs to trust on you as Lord and Savior for the first time, I pray that they would hear the truth of the gospel and that they would welcome it into their life. They would reach out to you in prayer and then grab a friend or a loved one and, and tell them of the decision they long to make. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for giving, for loving, for submitting. It's in your precious name we pray this morning. If you need to talk to someone about receiving Jesus as Christ, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody close to you first. And then if you, you still have questions, you can find myself or one of the other elders, and we'll be happy to chat with you about salvation in Christ Jesus. So let's stand together and sing about our salvation and our beautiful Savior.
So everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a child of God. No longer needing to be afraid, not given a spirit of fear, but one of sound mind, love, and self-discipline. I messed that up really bad, but that's okay. You guys uh, get the gist. Yeah, it's in uh, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, God bless you guys this week. I encourage you to attend small groups as you find time. And uh, thank you so much for being part of church today. And if you see empty seats and know who's missing, be sure to pray for them or encourage them this week. Uh, not in a condemning way, but just in a missed you, love you, praying for you kind of way. So God bless and we'll see you guys next Sunday. Happy Father's Day.